because Jesus is the living water, we can go to God in prayer. Would you join with me now? Lord God, you are the answer to our deepest desires. You hold the key to the longings of our hearts. And while we are incomplete, you are complete. You lack nothing and are generous and give to those who recognize their need. In you, all the mysteries of life has their answer. Father God, that the depth of your goodness knows no end. Your life is now our life. Your passions are our passions, and in you, our lives have a purpose. But Father God, we ask that you would refresh us with the joy of eternity, the joy of being in you. For, for we are, are way too quick to satisfy ourselves in the simplicity of this world. We know that, that we ought to drink from the cup that you have given us. For we are parched and dry, and we do not drink of the water of your word often enough. Forgive us for not looking for, for the peace that you promise. Lord, at the heart of this is a, a lack of patience. For we do not wait for you. We do not long for you to satisfy us. We are not willing to wait for the day that you will right every wrong. Lord, remind us of your faithfulness, that you are a God true to your word, true to the promises that you have made. And Lord, when we doubt, give us eyes to see your faithfulness. Lord, we do thank you that you are a faithful God. You are a God that we can trust, that we can turn to. You have given us your word, you have given us yourself, and you have given us each other. We pray that each of these gifts, that we would recognize you and your faithfulness. This morning, we are especially grateful for giving us, as a church, elders. Elders who are called to love, care, and teach your word to your people. This morning, we especially thank you for Hans. Through your faithfulness in him, this church exists as it does today. Thank you for the way in which he has worked to, towards pleasing you, Lord, in the organization and function and teaching of this church. Lord, we also thank you for Kelly and for the family who have sacrificed much to be uh, here and to work here at this church and at Mission. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness that is visible through them. This last week, as, as Hans prepares for a period of rest, we pray that it would be just that that he would rest in you and the work that you have done, and that he would be refreshed in what has already been accomplished and encouraged by the work that needs to be done. We pray that he would come back with confidence in your plan and purpose, and that this final week, as he prepares for a sermon next Sunday, would be one of endurance and one of confidence in you. And even now, as he brings the word to us, we pray that our hearts would be receptive Lord, may we look for you and, and, and in this text, and may this, the seed of your word bear fruit in our lives. Amen. 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 Thank you, Nick. Nick's a sweet guy, isn't he? I was way too sweet. Undeserved, but thank you. Would you open up to Revelation 22, 1 through 7? a car alarm? Yeah? Okay. Bud's got it. Well, good morning. Revelation 22. We're in the last chapter. I love stories that have happy endings. Books, movies, plays, all of them. Now, I appreciate movies that depict the reality that life doesn't always turn out well, but... If given my choice when watching a movie, I would rather see one where I weep tears of joy at the end. Does anybody else feel that way? Yeah? yeah. Those of you with super dark hearts, you're like, no, I like the dark ones. <laughs> Even better are those books or movies that foreshadow that joy-filled ending as they go throughout the storyline. As the story progresses, you get glimpses of the plot of the movie, 
working towards a culmination that will end in a way that the audience rejoices. Now, the text we find ourselves in this morning is uh, just that. It's the undeniable, perfect ending that we desire. We've come to the last chapter of the revealing of Jesus Christ to his saints in the midst of the church age. And chapter 20 captured this church age with Jesus enthroned over the church as we proclaim the gospel throughout the world. And at the end of this church age will come a day when we can be assured there will be a bodily resurrection and judgment to eternal life for eternal death. Chapter 21 then initiated various views of what that eternal life with Christ will be like, what heaven will be like. And John has used the imagery first of a bride and then of a fortress, a city known as New Jerusalem. Both encompass the security of our eternal relationship with God and intimate covenant union as his people. And this morning, we come to the third view of that eternal life and the completion of God's work amongst his people. And the view that he's going to give us today is that of a garden, specifically a restored garden, the Garden of Eden. But this time, there will be no serpent. There will be no tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There will be no deception. And there will be no exile. This is the joy-filled ending to come for those of us who are in Christ. It is a picture this morning that we will look at of the curse undone and the garden restored. The curse undone and the garden restored. That's the title for the sermon this morning. Now, one thing that we need to deal with before we read the text is this. What makes it qualitatively a joy-filled ending? Because if you've been following along, you realize that just a few weeks ago, we looked at the end of chapter 20, which was one more view of the Day of Judgment. And from the explanation of that day, we realize that there will be some very difficult things that occur. This world, as we know of it, it will pass away. And that means that many humans, and the scripture actually probably suggests most humans, will be judged as citizens of the kingdom of darkness and sent away from the presence of the Lord into eternal contempt. And so from a finite human, earthly perspective, we have to admit that doesn't sound very happy, does it? So how do we arrive then at this joy-filled ending? Well, that's where we must realize that what we're about to read is not a joy-filled ending because its focus is the finite human earthly perspective. It's a happy ending, a redemptive ending, a just ending, and a good ending because God will be restored as king of his creation. And he will be in fullness of relationship with the cosmos he authored. And the people that bear his image will be one with him. It is a happy ending because, as with the rest of Revelation, the focus is not on us, nor our world, but the focus is on Christ. This is what makes it a joy-filled ending. And from that vantage point, we can now read our text this morning to hear what the Spirit would have us hear and see what the Spirit would have us see. And this is an eternal future with Christ that should give us all hope, that compels us forward in obedience and endurance even when we suffer trials. So let's read our text this morning from Revelation 22, verses 1 through 7. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. This is the word of the Lord. John is being led through a tour, if you will, of visions that encapsulate the full message of what God wants his saints to hear about eternal life. 
And remember from a few weeks ago that the point here is not the material nature of what the new heaven and earth look like. In fact, the Bible gives us an understanding that that will be so amazing that there's almost not human words for it. And so the material is not what God is interested in revealing to us. He's instead giving John symbolic visions so that John might communicate to the church the qualities of the new heaven and new earth. And as we noted, the bride imagery speaks to the intimate relationship between the bride and bridegroom, or the Lord and his people. The city and fortress imagery is used to declare that God's relationship with his people will be secure from any threat. And now, this angelic tour guide brings John and brings us to a third metaphor that puts a punctuation mark on the imagery. He shows John that in Christ, the Garden of Eden will be restored. In Christ, the Garden of Eden will be restored. And he shows it even in the fact that it is being restored through the church today. The Bible contains many themes within it, but two that we can trace from the beginning to the end are that of a garden and a curse. Now let's think about the garden imagery for a bit. In the beginning, the world was without form and void. <clears throat> Excuse me. It was subjected to futility and chaos and disordered by the sin of mankind. Or sorry, it was subjected to futility and chaos in its beginning. But God, being a wonderful creator and provider, prepared a place for his people to live and dwell with him, and a place that they would be fruitful in labor and stewardship. And so out of that chaos, he created order. Would you please go back with me in your Bible to Genesis 2, and we'll take a look at Genesis 2, 5 through 17. Genesis 2, verse 5. Give me an amen if you're there. It says, When no bush of the field was yet the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good, Delium and onyx. Stones are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of the tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now key to the story are a river and a tree. The river that flows out of Eden is the source of life in Eden and the surrounding world, and it flows to the remaining areas of the known world at the time of Moses, giving life to the rest of the world, if you will. But then there's also the tree of life whose fruit brought eternal life, and then finally the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God placed Adam in the garden to tend and keep the garden. The words tend and keep in the Hebrew mean to cultivate it and to protect it. But you know the rest of the story. He didn't do those things. And the serpent, the adversary of God and the great deceiver of mankind, enters the picture in Genesis 3 and subversively convinces Eve and eventually Adam that they shouldn't trust God and that they don't have to revere him as king of the cosmos. They were convinced in their own minds that they could be their own lords and decide good and evil on their own by partaking of the tree of knowledge. In the moment they did so, the tie between heaven and earth was snapped and broken, and creation was submitted to sin. Mankind handed the title deed of earth over to Satan, and heaven and earth were separated. But because God is so gracious and so merciful, he immediately reassured humanity that this was not irredeemable. Look at his statement of judgment to the serpent in Genesis 3.15. He says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, 
and you shall bruise his heel. This, dear friends, is the first mention of the gospel, what's formally called in theological terms the proto, or first, euangelion, or gospel. One day, God says an offspring will come from the human race that will undo what the serpent has done. He will crush the head of the serpent, but in the process will be harmed by the serpent, a viper, that when he is bit, he will die. And this battle will accomplish the undoing of what the sin of Adam and Eve has done. But the natural consequences was that man's sin had self-excluded him from God's presence and the blessing of eternal life. And so he was exiled, Adam and Eve, they were exiled to the east away from the garden to toil and strive, forever longing for the day when their offspring would redeem what had been broken. Take a look there at Genesis 20 through 24. The man, Adam, called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that, named, uh, that uh, turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. The imagery of the garden shows that mankind was excluded exiled because of their sin. And that was a good thing, because to exist in spiritual death away from God and yet physically live forever, that would be the worst zombie horror film of all time. Literally. It would be walking in eternal death and yet somehow being animated and moving around. And so God, in his love, excludes mankind and says, you will go through the process of the natural consequences of death, but I have a solution. I will redeem. And the imagery of the garden was then used as a reminder throughout the redemptive story as a message from God that he had not forsaken them and that he was working through that redemptive plan. And as the people of Israel were chosen by God and sent into the wilderness, God gave them that imagery in the tabernacle. On the curtains were pictures of images of the garden, and this reminded them of the Garden of Eden that was to come. And then when they were planted firmly in Jerusalem, the temple had multiple symbolic images within it that pointed to the garden as well. Even the giant lampstand was thought of by the Jewish leaders as a reminder of the tree of life. In these images, God was reminding Israel and us that he is at work in the midst of the redemptive timeline and that one day these tabernacles and temples that were placed as placeholders, they will be ultimately fulfilled when God restores Eden and is with his people. One day, God and man will again be in perfect relationship in the midst of his submitted creation. But for that to occur, something had to happen. Someone had to come to undo the original sin of Adam and Eve. A new and better Adam would need to come as a representative of mankind to walk in complete obedience to God and to take that sin upon himself. And in selfless love, this Messiah would be able to crush the kingdom of the serpent and draw God's chosen and elect people into the kingdom that he established. In the man, Jesus of Nazareth, this seed of the woman came forth. He showed himself to be the obedient, perfect Adam. He represented and displayed the reign of God in his ministry. He established a redeemed, true Israel in the 12 apostles and the beginnings of the Jesus community made up of Jew and Gentile. And then he died as a substitutionary sacrifice, taking on the wrath of God that was meant for you and for me. He became our scapegoat. And in this death, he ransomed us from the kingdom of darkness and the clutches of sin and made us his own. And then to prove his victory, he resurrected from the dead ascended to the right hand of the Father on high and sent the Spirit into his people so that we might be a living, breathing temple and place in which heaven and earth meet, a temporary Garden of Eden, if you will. And so now, we wait. We wait. For the first audience of Revelation, the church in the first century, they were waiting too. And they were asking, how long, O Lord, until your promises come? 
And similarly, we wait for the redemption, the fullness of redemption to occur. We similarly ask, how long, O Lord, until your promises come? And that, dear brothers and sisters, is why Christ has sent these visions to John. He wants to remind the church that his promises will come to pass. For the redemptive work of Christ has given us the promise of eternal life, and we are guaranteed of its future occurrence, but we have not laid hold of it yet. One day, the covenant community of God's people, his bride, his new Jerusalem, we will also one day be Eden restored. And he captures this idea back in Revelation, go back there with me, in the first few verses of chapter 22. And then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. John captures this idea that we will eventually see the garden restored, talking about two main images of Eden, the river and the tree of life. The new heaven and new earth will bring new life to all of God's people and to creation itself. And this is first pictured here in that in the restored Eden, God's people will once again have access to the river of life. In the Near East, to have water is to have life. To not have water is to die. In Egypt, for example, the Nile Delta is known for its greenery and fruitfulness because the Nile River supplies life and at certain points of the year, it overflows its banks and creates the Nile Delta. To have water is to have life. In Genesis, there was a river of life that flowed from a single river into four rivers that supplied that life to the rest of the known world of the ancient Near East. And John is using this imagery to help God's people continue and endure when they are feeling under persecution or in exile or in trial. We, like people thirsty for Christ, are reminded that Christ is the one who gives us that life. He is that river of life. And this has been something God has done throughout his word and the redemptive story it outlines. He doesn't do it just here in Revelation, but John actually is pulling from imagery earlier in the Old Testament. For example, this same imagery was given as a promise to the children of Israel when they were in exile in Babylon through the visions of Ezekiel. You can read it on your own time this week. You can read all of Ezekiel 47. That's where it comes from. But in that vision, God takes Ezekiel to the temple in Jerusalem. And he sees, issuing forth from the altar, through the east entrance, a river, a river of life. And there is a man in the vision, potentially even an angel, who measures the depth of the river. He walks out partially and measures it. And as he moves out from the temple, it gets deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And it flows east to the Dead Sea. And if you've ever been to the Dead Sea, as I have, it is dead. There is nothing that can live in that environment. And so what's so interesting about this imagery is that it leads there and it's powerful and fresh enough that it brings new life to even this Dead Sea. And this section of Ezekiel 47 finishes with this verse, Ezekiel 47, 12, and on the banks on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Sounds just like our reading in Revelation, doesn't it? God has been promising and reinforces that promise again here in Revelation that he will bring the refreshment of eternal life to his people. Friends, you might be in a place in life where things seem completely broken and you feel overwhelmed with the sin and the death that surrounds us. You may look at something and say, it's irredeemable. The first century Christians felt the same way as they existed in trial and persecution and martyrdom. And yet Christ's vision to his people is meant to remind us that we need to simply endure because one day the glimpse of new life that we can see in the gospel, that we can see in ourselves and in his church, it will become a full river that pours throughout the earth and brings new life. 
And that life is available now through the work of the Holy Spirit in the midst of his church. Maybe this morning you feel burdened and beat down by life, or maybe even by your own choices that you've made. But Jesus wants to remind you that leaning into him, leaning into his word, and leaning into his people is that which will bring you the life you need. In John 4, as we read earlier, there was a woman at a well who felt beat down by life. And Jesus pointed at the well that she was getting water from and said, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Brothers and sisters, true life is found only in relationship with and submission to Jesus. And one day there will be nothing that stands in the way of that. Whatever hindrance you feel today to that refreshment, it will be gone. And so endure in the midst of the partial that you see now so that the refreshing water of eternal life can come in fullness one day. And then what it symbolizes The life of Christ will fill the new heaven and new earth in ways we can't even comprehend, just as we see the symbolism of the river of life coming from Christ's throne in the new Jerusalem. Secondly, we see that the new heaven and new earth will bring new life to all of God's people and to creation itself, because not only will God's people once again have access to the river of life, but they will also have access to that which is symbolized in the tree of life. Just as in Eden, the river of life provides the water so that the tree of life can grow. And from this, Adam and Eve could have eaten and lived forever if they'd obeyed God. But this time, in Revelation 22, notice that there is no mention of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It is done away with. Instead, the city of the New Jerusalem, this restored Eden, is pictured as being filled with the tree. Go ahead and look at it there. It says, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, singular, one tree on both sides of the river, with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. In other words, it has filled the new Jerusalem. Everywhere you turn, you can pull fruit from its tree. This restored Eden is filled with the tree, able to provide the symbolic fruit of eternal life. It's grown and overtaken all the other trees, and the city itself is filled with it so it can be accessed from anywhere. And the potency and power of this tree of life is symbolized further in the use of the multiples of 12. No longer is there just one type of fruit, as assumed in Genesis 3. Now there are 12 kinds. And they produce the fruit not just in one season, but through all 12 months. In other words, there is no lack of supply of life in the new heaven and new earth. The gift of eternal life will be truly ours and given without reservation to those written in the Lamb's book of life. The imagery goes even further when it says that the very leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. This is not saying that the nations will still be around as we know them today and that they'll be in sickness. It's more of a metaphor that points to the fact that as God promised Abraham, all nations are blessed by Christ's atoning work. There are people from every nation, tribe and tongue, as we've seen in the throne room of heaven in chapters 5 and 6 and so on. There are people from every tribe, tongue, and nation that represent all of the nations in the New Jerusalem, and because of Christ's work on the cross and in resurrection, they are now healed. By Christ's wounds, we are healed. Because of Jesus' death on our behalf, we have regained access to the garden that we were once exiled from. Because of sin, our first mother and father and all of us were in exile, condemned to death. Because of Christ's death, death in our place for our sins, we now stand healed from that sin, able to fellowship with God, walking with him in the cool of the day. The greatest sickness and enemy we could ever come across has been slain by Christ. If you are in Christ, you have nothing that can overcome you. We may be debtors and beggars in our current state, but I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, 
nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. One day, this will become completely clear to us because in Christ, the Garden of Eden has been restored and will be fully restored one day. But John's vision goes on and we see next that in Christ, the fulfilled promise of the curse has also been undone. In Christ, the fulfilled promise of the curse has also been undone. Take a look at verses three through five. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Now, this imagery is meant to point us to the fact that in the new heaven and new earth, the curse and all that flows from it will be removed. Verse 3 says this clearly, no longer will there be anything accursed. If you don't know, accursed means anything under a curse. And the curse we read in Genesis 3 was the result of our usurpation of God's throne. We decided for ourselves what is good and what is evil, and because of that, we made ourselves Lord and pushed Christ away. And the curse, therefore, was not God declaring a curse on us like Zeus with a lightning bolt from his cloud, but much more, it was just him detailing what the natural repercussions of our sin was to be, that to be separated from the source of life, our creator would lead to death. And from that point on, God's throne was not here on earth, but existed only in heaven by our choice. The closest we came to his presence was that of the Holy of Holies, and specifically the Ark of the Covenant, which was the place called his footstool. His throne in heaven and his footstool here on earth as a place of invasion into the kingdom of darkness that betrayed him in rebellion. Well, John's vision assures us that once his enemies have been crushed under his feet, his throne, Jesus' throne, will reinvade earth fully, and he will once again be the king of the cosmos with no adversary to hinder his reign. And because of the removal of adversaries, we who were made in the image of Adam and remade in the image of Christ can now fulfill the role that was intended for Adam in the original garden. We will be Christ's servants, and we will worship him in tending and keeping the garden that he gave us. Heaven and earth will, once again, in fullness, completely overlap. And the glimpses we get of that in the midst of our body when we see the fullness of worship or the fullness of sacrificial love between one another, these small glimpses that we get now, they will be made whole in the new heaven and the new earth. And just as Adam walked with God in the cool of the day, we too will see God face to face. Do you look forward to that day? This connection is not just as simple acquaintances. We won't be across the garden going, I think I know that guy. No, we will know him face to face. And this is a fulfillment of what has been promised to God's covenant people in the priestly blessing that we sing over one another every Sunday. Each Sunday we sing, the Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. We get this ironic blessing from the section in Numbers 6, 22 through 27. Don't worry, we're not a cult. We didn't make it up. It's from the Bible. Take a look there on the screen. I say that because many people have come in and said, why do you guys do that? Well, it's from the Bible. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons saying, thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. God is giving Aaron and Moses the blessing to pronounce from God over the people of Israel. And notice that last verse. God says, by stating this blessing over his people, they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. Why would he bless them? Because, not because of their good works, because of God's great, sovereign, gracious love with which he chose them and stays faithful to them. 
It is this covenant love that will be brought forth in fullness in the midst of this restored garden of Eden in the new heaven and new earth. In verse 4 of our text in Revelation 22, it says that we, God's true covenant people, will finally fully see his countenance, and he will finalize the blessing he has promised by making us his people. Notice, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. He will finalize the blessing he has promised us by making us his own figuratively placing his name upon our foreheads. In chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, the letters to the church, John is told to write to them various promises that God will make because he will give them to those that endure. And here's one of them in Revelation 3. Revelation 3, 10 through 13, it says, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of a trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who excuse me, conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In the new heaven and new earth that awaits those in Christ, he will make good on this promise once and for all. Chapters 2 and 3 is him speaking to the churches, calling us to endure, promising us of what will come if we do so. Revelation 22 is the end of the story, where he says, I will make good on every promise I have made, because God is faithful to his promise. And so, brothers and sisters, we sing this blessing over each other every week, Because we need one another. We need one another to show Christ's face in the midst of the trials of this life. It is by laying down our lives for one another practically, by setting aside our petty arguments or divisions, and by loving and encouraging one another that we show the face of God to one another and the world that is watching us so closely. This picture of the garden restored will come in fullness one day, but our playing it out, even imperfectly, in the midst of the local church is what is declaring to the world that this day is on its way. This is part of our mission together as a church. In the new heaven and the new earth, there will be a fullness of God's revealing. The revelation, the apocalypse, will be complete. And since all deception and the father of lies and those who subscribe to those lies will be removed... Only truth will reign. Christ will reign in righteousness and justice, and it will be his judgment of good and evil alone that will rule. And this is pictured clearly in the removal of all night and all darkness. It says, Their night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This use of the symbol of light versus darkness is well utilized by John in all of his writings. For it was in his gospel the gospel of John, that Jesus is declaring, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And Jesus later tells those that follow him that we, his people, reflect the light as we are collectively called the light of the world. In the new heaven and new earth, the fullness of God's presence will be among us and we will walk in his light, reflecting him as we're in fellowship with him and with one another, all under the lordship of his rule and truth. Friends, this imagery is meant to help us endure, to give us the knowledge of hope that one day all that is sinful and evil and deceptive will be removed, and we will stand in the fullness of life and communion with God and his people. All that is imperfect will be done away with. And this hope of the promise of God should hold us fast when we desire to give up or to give in to the world that is drawing us with temptation or harming us through persecution. It also is meant to remind us that what will one day come in fullness is something that has started in the midst of Christ's church today. For in the midst of the local church, we have people in whom the spring of water that Jesus described is present in the Spirit. In the midst of the local church, we have men and women who, as we heard in our first reading from Psalm 1, are trees of righteousness who bear fruit, that give us life as they delight in the law of the Lord and sit under his righteous rule as it is enacted amidst his people. 
And it's in this that we also see the very present throne of God and the Lamb as we worship him together in corporate worship and as we submit to his word together in common discipleship and service. It's in our benediction to one another that we display his countenance of loving kindness to one another. And we play that out throughout the week as we love one another well. It's in that love for one another and in our corporate commitment to enacting the lordship of Christ in our midst that we become the beacon, that new Jerusalem, that city on a hill that draws the surrounding world to Christ and his kingdom because the light of Christ is reflected in our love for one another. Jesus is saying in his vision to John, John, that glimmer of my kingdom that you see now in the midst of the local church, that glimmer that you see amidst the brokenness, deception, and persecution in places like Ephesus and Pergamum and Laodicea and Portland and Salem and Ouagadougou, it is that which will eventually overcome all else and envelop the entire creation. And when it does, God tells John he will be our light and he will reign And because of that, we will reign with him forever and ever. Sounds good, doesn't it, folks? This promise to come is one that should motivate us to endure in the midst of the imperfection. But it's not one that has no bearing on the here and now. It's one that motivates us because as we see these small glimpses, we understand what will come. And this should drive us, Mission Fellowship to be a group of people that strive with all of our energy to leave no room for unholiness or division or selfishness, but instead to do everything we can to love one another, to forgive one another, to serve one another, encourage one another, and bless one another. For it is by our purposeful, practiced, and continual love for one another that we display a preview of that joy-filled ending to come, and we draw people to the city on the hill so that they might join themselves to the bride of Christ, his church, and await their bridegroom. As with any good movie that gives previews and foreshadows the good ending that is coming, we, the local church, should provide a glimpse to those who are watching of the joy-filled ending to come. We should show a preview of the relationships of the garden restored. Amen? Well, it's with this last vision that the visions of Revelation come to a close. But before we move on to the last section in which Jesus concludes the book, I want to just look at a first, the first few lines of the conclusion that we'll finish next week. And I want to do this because the text today has painted a picture that might cause us to question. If you're anything like me, You look at this and you say, this is beautiful, and I can hardly wait, but quite honestly, Lord, I'm often overwhelmed with the brokenness inside me and the brokenness around me. And quite honestly, Lord, if the church is to be a preview of eternity, I've felt let down and hurt by those within the church so many times that I'm not even sure I can hold out hope for this day. Maybe you feel that way. Maybe you look at the imperfection and it feels overwhelming. Well, that is why I think we need to have these last few verses, where what we see is that because of Christ, we can entrust our lives to God's faithful promises. Because of Christ, we can entrust our lives to God's faithful promises. The angel tells John, first, that the words and message of Revelation are trustworthy and true. He says that in verse 6. He said to me, these words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So the angel says, these words are trustworthy and true. There is no reason to doubt them. How so? Because the Lord is the one who has sent them. He is the God of the entire story. He is the God of the Holy Spirit that is spoken through Moses and through the prophets and through Jesus himself. The same message. This is why we've covered so much of the Bible in Revelation. He's spoken the same message over and over to his people and even through John the Revelator. 
Throughout Revelation, we've seen that one God, one Lord has given one story and he has sent his son to die a death he did not deserve and resurrect a new life to prove that he is the author of this redemptive story. Through Jesus, we know that God the Father is the sovereign Lord over every piece of history and every piece of future. And so in Revelation 1.5, Jesus is called the faithful witness. He is the one who has proven the word of God is true by his death and resurrection and by his, the assembly of his people through the declaration of his gospel the world over. John has continued this witness throughout Revelation and declared the beauty of Christ to the church. So we can wait in trusting assurance that Christ will return to save his people. He will return to completely remove sin and death. And he will return to establish a new heaven and a new earth that we will all dwell in one day. And Christ himself attests to this as he speaks next in that verse 7. He says, Christ says, Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. This word soon, this statement, is not intended to be a chronological quantity. We've been mistaking this from the beginning. Do you, do you remember the story of Adam and Eve? And she had her first son, and she said, ah, oh, the Lord has given me a son, meaning the one he promised. How did that work out well? His name was Cain. It didn't work out well. We think God promises something immediately because we want it our way right away. But God is the one who's sovereign, and he's the one who knows the perfect timing. And so this word soon in our English language, we take it and mean it something else than it means. It's not a chronological quantity. It's instead pointing to the imminence of his coming. For there is nothing else that needs to occur for Christ to return, to resurrect the dead and sit in righteous judgment. He's simply awaiting for his, his bride to finish being adorned. And with this being the case, what sort of people ought we to then be in holiness and obedience? For this day will come, and any hesitancy on Christ's part is not because his plan has been halted. No, rather it's so that he can draw the fullness of his people that are his own, adorn them as his bride with holiness amidst struggle, and proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so now we, as his people, we focus upon Christ, his word, and his people in preparation for that day. And this same blessing is there at the beginning of the book in Revelation 1-3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Revelation 1-3 and this conclusion, they bookend Revelation with this similar message. That we who read it, that we who follow it, that we who keep it and obey it, that we will be blessed. And so as we wait for Christ to return and resurrect and judge and establish the new heaven and new earth. As we wait, we endure in the midst of struggle and evil. And in this waiting time, we're to take the truths put forth in this book and stand firm in them. And it is in standing firm in Christ's truth that we will find ourselves blessed as rooted trees producing the fruit of Christ from which the world can have a preview of eternal life. But our delight must be in the law of the Lord, and we must meditate on it day and night. And so as we read this and as we finish, church, I want to tell you, Satan is trying to break you. He's trying to deceive you and cause you to give up and give in to the world. Satan is doing so through the enticement of the seductress of the world and all that it says it will provide you that is empty and meaningless. And Satan is doing so through the deception of those who proclaim that they are Christians, but by their actions show that they are part of the synagogue of Satan rather than the covenant community of Christ. And brothers and sisters, unless you base truth in Christ's word and his word alone, Instead of your own feelings, emotions, and opinions, you will falter and get pulled into deception. And so the entirety of Revelation tells us to be watchful, 
to stand fast and endure and base yourself in the truth of God's word and God's true people. And if you do that, you will endure in temptation, in trial, in suffering. And one day, the partial will become full. And the glimmers of joy we see now in the midst of his people will result in the fullness of the curse undone and the garden restored. Friends, if you are here today and you are not firm in your commitment to Christ, we as a church body are inviting you in to the bride of Christ to be part of his people. If you have any interest in doing that, any one of us pastors or any one of the members of this church would be happy to talk with you about that. For those of us that are his, we can look forward with hope to this day and we can allow it to motivate us and to help us to endure in the midst of difficulty and trial and persecution and suffering. And so let's now, as a church community, give witness to that truth by declaring our common faith by speaking together the Apostles' Creed. Would you stand with me? Let's speak it together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Friends, I hope that you're looking forward to that life everlasting in the same way I am. The beauty of the visions that we've been given in Revelation show us the intimacy that we will have as the bride of Christ, the security we will have as the new Jerusalem fortress, and today, the joy and delight that we will take in being one with Christ and his people in the midst of the restored Garden of Eden. What a beautiful thing to look forward to. And so now, as we prepare our hearts for communion, let's pray so that the Lord can allow us to be that preview and be that community that shows as a light to the world that he has died, he is resurrected, and he will come again. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your goodness. We thank you for your word that gives us a clear picture of the joy that stands before us and that we can look forward to. Lord, allow this to be what holds us fast by your spirit in the midst of trial and temptation. Lord, when we feel like we need to give in and give up, remind us that Satan knows he's already defeated, and so that's why his job is to try and get us to give up early before the fullness of that defeat comes. Help us to endure, Lord. Help us to have a vision of the new heaven and new earth and a vision of our relationship with you that holds us fast in these times. And Lord, as we step into communion now, we pray that you would prepare our hearts, each of us individually and us as a community, to come to your table and to spend time with you and to be reminded of your sacrificial death so that we might be able to preach to the world around us the good news of your gospel, your resurrection, and the eternal life that you bring. In Jesus' name, amen.